Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. In 2021 alone, local founders have raised more than $5 billion in VC dollars, making Chicago a national destination for founders, investors, and innovators. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives growth and opportunity for our local tech economy and innovation ecosystem through its flagship programs such as the Chicago Venture Summit, Startup Chicago, Think Chicago, and Venture Engine. Learn more via worldbusinesschicago.com. Nick, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. It's a true pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Excited to be here. Going to have to give a shout out and a thank you to our mutual friend, Willie Polivos, for connecting the two of us and, you know, pulling the strings, working this, getting this all together. I mean, he's an invaluable friend and I'm sure he's an invaluable employee. Anything for Willie Polivos, you know, he's been here since we were 10, 12 people. So he asked me to do anything. I'm willing to do it and heard great things about you, Matt. So I was excited to hop on and, and I've, I've listened to a couple of shows and watched them and they're awesome and love the content you're doing for Chicago and just the venture community. So it's great work. All right. Well, this is already my favorite interview I've ever done. This is, I yeah. could go home right now. Um, but no, I'd, uh, I'd love to dive into a little bit of your background and hear about your path to entrepreneurship and any of the stops you took along the way. Yeah, it's a, it's a really weird path. So I was, my whole life up until I was around 22, 23 years old was actually tennis. And so I played junior tennis, traveled around the world and the country competing, played college tennis at Vanderbilt. And then, um, and then I graduated in 2009, which was a really poor time to try and find a proper business job. And so I ended up, my first job at a school, I was actually Northwestern's women's assistant tennis coach for a year in Evanston. And, um, and it was a great experience and to no credit of my own, an awesome team. They're number one in the country and we won a national indoor championship, big 10 championship. And, and it was the first kind of foray into my professional world. And, you know, it was, it was, it was unexpected. And I tried to get a job as a consultant during that period. And everyone I would sort of interview against had three to six years of experience or a PhD or an MBA. And, and the only thing I was great at was kind of hitting a tennis ball. So it, I, I struggled to kind of get a job in the first year or two of, um, of my career. Um, so it was, it was kind of an interesting start. And from there, you know, basically I used tech entrepreneurship as a way to get my start in business. So I had, uh, I had networked a lot in the local Chicago community with other Vanderbilt athletic alums and just figured if there were other student athletes that had spent their entire life playing a sport and also tried to figure out what to do next when that sport was over, they would sort of understand the pain point of what I was going through. And through that experience, what I ended up doing was building our first company called Athlions, which was basically LinkedIn groups before LinkedIn groups. And you aggregated all the different student athletes at Vanderbilt and Northwestern. Um, and you could see who they were based on the sport they played and their current job. And it was basically a networking site for, for former athletes. And so I built, I built that software with our current chief technology officer, Scott Kaysen. And launched it and, and sold subscriptions to Vanderbilt and Northwestern. And then, and then I told that story to KPMG and convinced them to, to give me my first proper business job as, a, as an associate in their tech practice. And so 
So I actually used entrepreneurship to get my first job, which was in business, which I thought was kind of an interesting approach. This guy had no previous experience. So I have to ask, did your timing correspond with uh, Jay Cutler at all? Are you at Vanderbilt? Yeah, so Jay was a fifth year when I was a freshman. So I overlapped with him a little bit. We uh, so at Vanderbilt they had this incredible dining hall where you know yeah. basically the athletes would eat together, and so I would see him see him at dinners overnight. And um and yeah, he was a he's a legend at Vanderbilt. Not a, not as big of a Chicago Bears legend, at least for performance, but uh, but a le- but a legend at Vandy. <laughs> so did you did you figure out? In college, at least, I know you were a student athlete, but did you have any idea, at least in your back pocket, that entrepreneurship maybe would be something you would pursue? Did you have like the bug everybody talks about? Or was it really sort of you were kind of back against the wall trying to get a job, trying to break in, and and that's where it came from? Yeah. You know, I think it's a bit of both, right? So when you play a sport in college or just your whole life, you know, essentially I, I'd found something I was deeply passionate about loved the sport of tennis, was obsessed with trying to get better every week, every day, every year. Um, and really like had a lot of joy in like trying that iterative process of getting better, you know, every time you go out there and and compete. And so when I entered the business world, I kind of struggled in the traditional kind of corporate setting in the sense that, you know, it's very restrictive on levels and growth and promotion schedules and, and I sort of wanted to be a partner in the first year at KPMG, even though I was no way equipped to do it. I didn't even understand what IT consulting was. But um, but I, I didn't love the idea that like you essentially had an 8, 12, 15-year track before before you could essentially engage at, at the highest level there. And I thought, well, what if I work two times as hard, three times as hard, spend more time learning, invest in myself? And you're still restricted with a little bit of a ceiling. So I always thought entrepreneurship was the closest thing to a sport where you know, you're working on something you're super passionate about and excited about and you love every day. And, and you're only as good as, as the inputs that you put into, to doing it. So, you know, that was kind of, that was kind of my methodology for it as well. If I'm going to sell something, I might as well sell software or a service or, or whatever it is we can create versus um, potentially doing it somewhere else. And it sounds like you got a taste of essentially HR tech before KPMG. And then you go to KPMG and you spend time as an IT, you know, consultant when did the first kind of inception for Hunt Club begin? You know, what was your sort of path post KPMG or throughout KPMG? Yeah, so it was a really interesting path. So it's, again, very nonlinear. So I went to KPMG within three months. You know, I love the firm and I love the people there, but sort of realized it wasn't for me. Um, stuck it out for two years. But, you know, essentially had an idea to build a photo sharing app my last year at KPMG where if you've ever used Apple's album feature where different people can send photos to one album um, and convince myself that it would be a great idea to quit this great corporate job with the paycheck and, and um, you know, a great lifestyle to go build a photo sharing app where Apple basically launched a feature that decimated us in a couple of weeks. So, so that was, that was kind of the next foray in entrepreneurship. I basically quit. I dragged my co-founder Scott back from San Diego where he had this awesome life. He was in a rotational program at Intuit, you know, jumping between product manager tours of duty and coding and convinced him to leave San Diego where he had this great life on the beach and move back to Chicago in February to build a photo sharing app with me in, in the dead of winter. And so, so that took us to a sort of another path where we got into an accelerator program called the Brandery in Cincinnati. Um, have you heard of the Brandery by chance, Matt? I have not. No, I have not. So it's this great, it used to be one of the top five accelerator programs, similar to kind of YC and Techstars. Um, great people, primarily focused on consumer brands or marketing tech, just given the proximity of Procter & Gamble and a lot of other sort of 
marketing focused companies. And so I, we went there to Cincinnati, built a, built a different business, um, but met a ton of people through the process. So investors and other founders and made great relationships. And, you know, from that experience, um, came back to Chicago and, and decided that I wanted to basically build a business building businesses. And so I started something called New Coast Ventures and, and over two or three years before Hunt Club, um, was fortunate to meet a lot of great families and folks that wanted to invest in startups and was lucky to have them support me to kind of be their vehicle to, to put some capital work in this asset class. So we invested in 40 startups through New Coast Ventures and then built a lot of software for for companies and, and incubated two or three businesses too, Hunk Club being the second. So it was really a, a weird path of tennis coach to entrepreneur to become a consultant to failed entrepreneur to pseudo venture capitalist slash business builder to sort of what we're doing today and growing our recruiting business at Hunt Club. So so really not a not a linear path, but but it's been fun learning at every phase and stage. Were you and Scott doubles partners since fifth grade or so? I feel yeah. like the the bond that you two have is stuff of legends. And I, I have to know, yeah, how did you how did you convince him to leave San Diego? It feels like you guys have been in lockstep for so long. Yeah, he's kind of wired a bit like I am, where he's always wanted to go build something as well. Um, and so he was out there and he, you know, it's funny, he is this legendary business he started at Vanderbilt where essentially he built a, a website where people could log on, input their dorm room, and he would come and take out your trash on a weekly basis. And so he he always had this entrepreneurial kind of bent into as well, where where he basically built a trash taking out business at Vanderbilt University and Vanderbilt ended up shutting it down because you can't monetize anything on campus at the time, which I thought was the stupidest thing in the world, given, you know, you should be fostering entrepreneurship. But but he was kind of wired that way, too, where he just always was tinkering and trying things. And so um, we've had a great relationship building a business or many businesses together. It takes a lot of trust because there's certainly great times and not great times. And and it's, you know, at this point, we're more like brothers and family than we are business partners based on everything we've been through. I mean, anyone that can sell somebody on Chicago in February versus San Diego, I mean, that's a bond for life right there. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yep. I, 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 would not have killed the relationship or made it stronger. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. One way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's it's been strong as ever. It sounds like you guys uh, have really, you know, put that relationship into this company and, uh, you know, the company's the better for it. I would love to talk about, you know, you mentioned it was a company that became incubated uh, during your time um, at your previous venture, but what was sort of the inception? What was the problem solution that you saw in the HR tech landscape that, you know, caused you to believe that Hunt Club was a business that you truly wanted to double down on and essentially go all in on? Yeah. Yeah. So there were a couple of phases. So the first thing that we had noticed was really built on um, just a personal experience. So I had a friend that was an executive recruiter at one of the larger tier one firms, and he kept winning these digital searches. And so think of like a VP of acquisition marketing or a chief digital officer. And he had primarily focused on more CPG type searches. So consumer product goods companies that weren't necessarily as bent on digital. And what he got really incredibly good at was looking at my network on LinkedIn and asking for introductions. And so one summer I'd placed five people for him just from him simply saying, Hey, Nick, I saw you were connected to so-and-so you mind making an introduction. And so I'd be like, sure, you know, Matt, meet Bonnie, Bonnie, meet Matt, fire the introduction away. And, and over that summer I placed five people for him. Um, 
And I kept getting an email back from the folks that I introduced to my recruiter friend saying, hey, I actually took that job. I never would have considered it had it not come from you. Thank you so much. And like, I'm excited and I've got a new gig I'm, I'm looking forward to. And, and that like made me really curious about the space. So, so my friend was in the industry. He had no relationship with these people. He was leveraging other relationships to get access. And it, the relationship I had built with those in my network was powerful enough, whether through professional or social, that they actually took the opportunity seriously, right? And took the job. Um, and so obviously the introduction's part of it. The opportunities were great, but but that made me perk my ears about the space. And so, you know, that summer shadowed dozens of recruiting firms as big as the publicly traded ones to as small as three to five person shops and just saw none of them use any technology to power their process. It's still really email, cell phones, LinkedIn is their primary driver. All of them use these archaic databases that look like they've been built in the late 90s. They're not using any latest and greatest around artificial intelligence or machine learning to exploit their processes. They're not thinking about modern interfaces to make a better interaction. And I think most importantly, they're not even thinking about the customer or the candidate experience. And I think in this world, you know, you think about all consumer companies or all the great B2B companies, it's about building a great experience. And, you know, something I always deeply believed in is if you're if talent's the most important thing to any company, right? Without great people, you really don't have a, businesses aren't run by machines yet. Um, so people are the most important thing. And if if the service that most people activate to get great people, they hate because of the way it's built, the experience that's been created, why does that and how does that make sense, right? So I thought there's an opportunity to use technology and, and, and networks um, in a different and unique way to, to help customers you know, do pretty incredible things and land their dream, their dream talent. So if I may, I guess we could, you know, back up and talk about the types of companies you guys have worked with thus far and, and how those relationships originally began, how they're fostered. And then we could go into sort of the specific use cases and the features of the platform. Yeah. Yeah. So, so our customers are primarily high growth companies. I think of series A through just raised a big billion dollar unicorn round and scaling tremendously fast. So we like to think of ourselves as the, the, the talent provider for some of the most innovative companies. Um, so whether it's, you know, high growth venture backed, growth equity backed, or even large, you know, publicly traded companies that are thinking about innovating for the first time and looking for the same talent as, as startups, that's where we kind of shine in, in, in helping companies find builders. And most of our customers, it's really cool, actually come from our community. So since our primary model is we have a network of, of leaders who sign up, drop their LinkedIn, drop their Gmail, drop their Outlook contacts in, and we build technology to map those relationships. When they refer talent, um, you know, essentially many of those candidates that are referred end up becoming customers. Many of the experts in our community end up becoming customers. And so, so it's really kind of a nice acquisition flywheel or customer acquisition flywheel where those that appreciate the experience and, and like the differentiation of our model Many of them are actually hiring managers too and end up becoming customers. And is there an ROI in terms of uh, the time it takes to fill these roles? Um, or is it more about the experience of finding these roles? Or do you guys try and shorten the time? What's that? How do you guys think about that sort of ROI? Yeah, so ROI for our customers goes in a couple different ways. So, so time to fill is definitely a big one, right? So through our technology and our expert network, we think that we can, on average, outperform most search firms by 30 to 50 percent of the, you know, cut the time basically by 30 to 50 percent. So it's so a really a faster, better process. But I think the more 
the more important value that we add is when you think about like one person, have you ever read that book Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell? They talk about it in business school all the time. Haven't given it the full read through, but yes, it gets mentioned all the time. <laughs> I've, I've only read one page, so it's relevant to tell the story. So it's the only page I've read. But basically they say like the top 1% of connectors can only really manage 150 to 200 people at once, um, sort of categorically in their own head, right? So, so what that means, if you think about that in the recruiting space, is you hire a great recruiter, maybe they can only really build connective tissue with 150 to 200 people. Um, and so their universe of those that are they're constantly keeping fresh in their network is pretty thin. And so we think the big value of Hunt Club is when you work with Hunt Club and we're working on Dollar Shave Club's VP of Marketing Search or Pinterest Director of Sales Search or whatever it might be, is we have hundreds of marketing and sales leaders across the country in every major city in the United States who drop their network in um, and refer on your behalf as a customer. And so you really get access through trusted introductions through, you know, really great people that have lived and breathed an industry or a function and know who's awesome and and are willing to to essentially leverage their network on your behalf to to introduce an opportunity to a friend and so that's the values where usually you may only have one network to pull from where you live what you've worked before you know we really give you a broad access and network of, of thousands of leaders which gets you better talent in your mind do you guys feel you're disrupting um you know, LinkedIn as a whole, are you disrupting legacy sort of recruiting and headhunting firms, all of the above? Um, and I know there's so much talk today about uh, how challenging right now LinkedIn is because it's sort of this horizontal all-in-one platform, which means there's just so much saturation and people don't really know uh, how to really use it anymore at this point. In your mind, like what are the main things that you feel you're disrupting? Yeah, I think we're really changing the external recruiting model today. And so in today's world, where most recruiting firms use very little technology, you know, we'll have a 40, 50 person engineering and product team thinking about how to design incredible tools and, and systems for our team to provide a better service to you or create better ways for our network to interact. And so the idea is we can be better, faster there. Um, and then down the road, we're really, what we're really doing is building a way for, for Matt to upload his network and for us to automatically find ways to create value for you to connect in the dots. And so the ability to expand into other businesses or models down the road, um, we're really excited about as we grow. But right now we're really focused on the recruiting market. It's, a, it's an over a $20 billion market that we're playing in. And there's very little differentiation of those investing in trying to do it any different than it's done today. And is your revenue model, is it, you know, SaaS-based revenue model or people paying a subscription for your services? Is it by hire? How does, how does that work? Yeah, so it's, it's by hire, um, but with a variety depending on customer needs, right? So we have a lot of customers. Um, one of our largest customers is a customer called GoPuff. If you've ever used their, their app before, they're an on-demand convenience store, get you anything in 20 minutes or less. And, and so we've added over 140 people to their company. And so they pay a little bit of a different subscription plus success fee model than um, G2 in Chicago, where we just brought their new chief marketing officer in there, where they pay um, more of a transactional model per search. So it varies depending on the type of customer um, and the type of scale that we do with that customer. A question I have is that I think in some sense today, especially when you're building startups, there's such an emphasis. And obviously, this is something I'm sure Hunt Club has thought about and thinks about all the time of the culture you're, you're building and, and the type of people you're bringing in, you know, not just the technical chops or the background, but, you know, who these people are at the end of the day. And, and that's probably really important at the earliest stages. 
does that bake into your model of how you source candidates? How do you guys sort of incorporate the cultural aspect into the yeah. into the search? Yeah, so we build a lot of different frameworks internally that allow us to really assess who our customer is, what their culture is, and then map that against the candidates that we're presenting to our customers. We're really looking at like what types of technology that we can build in the future to really assess and identify how do you truly map fit between two parties. It is really complex, especially in startups whose cultures change every 12 to 18 months as they grow and raise new rounds of financing. But we start by sort of building a taxonomy on who the customer is, what their business is, what's their business model. Um, and then we, we sort of address a little bit of a taxonomy around who their hiring manager is, what's their personality, what's their communication cadence. Um, and then we use that to map the customers and they're the candidates that we're assessing for them. And so we have some really big vision and some big, big ideas on how we'll use all the data that we're aggregating down the road to automate some of that and, and really perfect fit. Um, but it's a long journey as we aggregate that data. And going back, I guess, to, you know, the start of COVID and, and I have so many questions about how COVID has changed your business, your outlook on hiring, your outlook on HR. Um, but what was the experience of COVID like for your company? Did it change the company at all? Did it change your strategy? And then, you know, we can talk about sort of the macro landscape of, uh, of you know, recruiting in general and, and yeah. how people are going to be working in the future. Yeah, COVID was terrible for us for a quarter. Um it, you know, we had to make some hard decisions and, and furlough some really talented teammates. And we saw our revenue contract to about 20% of, um, you know, essentially what we had planned. And, and we thought the world was going to burn down like the, like the rest of the world at the time. And so, you know, it was a really difficult moment for me as a leader, as a, as a person that really cares about our company, because we had to make some really hard decisions and, and, and sort of buckled on the hatches. Um, what we found, though, Matt, was that COVID was actually a huge accelerant for our business at the end of it in a couple of different ways. So one of the big bets that we had always made was at some point, you know, in the next 5, 10, 20 years, you know, really two things. The first is that most companies would be open to a virtual or hybrid model, um, primarily for two reasons. The first is when you're hiring digital talent, the supply is so thin. Even if it's business functions, like a sales role for a digital company or a marketing role for a digital company, there aren't enough bodies presently to fill these jobs. Um, and so we believe that companies would have to start to look in new markets and be okay with more of a virtual model. And so COVID obviously blew the entire you know, hybrid or virtual workforce um, up overnight where now everyone got used to working through Zoom. Um, people's whole apertures on how talent could function in a digital and a remote environment, remote environment changed. And, um, and our, our cool metric was before COVID, I think it was like 15% of our customers were up for a hybrid or a remote environment. And now over 85% of them, you know, say best talent wins wherever they are. And so since we're building this sort of decentralized model where you have recruiters everywhere who are business leaders referring on your behalf, it gives our customers better access to talent. So that's the first big trend. I think the second big trend is big companies have all expedited their digital roadmaps by five to 10 years. So, you know, traditionally, if you're a brick and mortar store or retail store, you start investing in direct to consumer more aggressively. If you were a company that hadn't invested in, in really aggregating or organizing your data, you expedited that. Um, so really large companies had to start competing for the same talent that startups are looking to, to go higher as they think about building and digitizing themselves and taking them forward. And so, you know, I think that the, the tailwinds that we're now getting based on all this behavior change and you know, companies hiring remotely, all this behavior change, creating new business ventures, which are getting funded in the proliferation of capital. Um, 
and large companies now thinking about, you know, the same talent as tech companies um, has made it a really messy environment. And, and I think our model is really well suited to, to help companies figure it out. You mentioned the proliferation of capital and, yeah. you know, all these companies getting funded. Uh, you all at Hunt Club happen to be one of them. So, uh, you know, most recently you guys were in the press this week for your, you know, Series A raise. Congratulations. Thank Would you. love to hear about the process of raising that Series A and, you know, what the funds are going to be going towards and near term sort of strategic growth objectives. Yeah. Yeah. So we were actually weren't. It was funny. We weren't actually fundraising. Um and we're opportunistically taking a call here or there just to build relationships. And one of the primary ways we grow our customer base is through venture fund relationships. They have tons of companies who need great talent help. And, um, and one of our investors and customers, Godard Abel, who's the CEO of G2, made an introduction to a guy named Thomas Learman, who is um, the founder of Teamworthy Ventures. And so Thomas actually started a company called GLG many years ago. And um, it built sort of and created the category around expert networks. And so you know, just through Godard's introduction and getting to know Thomas and Stephen Schmalhofer sits on our board and MK, you know, they just seem like wonderful partners who got our vision of really building something at the intersection of technology, network effects and service. Um, and, and just had a really shared vision on, on how kind of the next generation of great companies, biggest problems are going to be hiring awesome talent based on the deficits and, and really aligned on how to solve that challenge. So, you know, started talking to them and, and really built a great relationship. And I thought they'd be kind of a wonderful partner to help us scale to the to the next level. And we're lucky to get them on board as, as our investors and partners. And as you're looking at scaling and you look at kind of, you know, the competitive landscape, how do you think about building that moat over time and, and building that defensibility? I mean, the network effects thing seems like, you know, it's going to be a huge propellant to that, but would be curious as to how you're thinking about that strategy over time. I think HR tech is a really hot space right now. Um, I've seen some vertical specific approaches uh, as opposed to a few horizontal approaches. Just curious how you're thinking about the competitive landscape. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of recruiting firms out there, right? Um, and so we certainly think of ourselves as a talent 2.0 agency or a talent company and servicing customers in ways that our competitors you know, it's just not in their DNA to ever think of. Right. And so, you know, I think one huge moat is just how we built our business from day one, you know, with a, a person that's never been in recruiting, that is a technologist and a CTO that's never been in, in talent or recruiting before that builds software. Right. And, and, and we have a third co-founder that was in banking that never spent any time in the talent industry as well. But I think since from day one, we've thought about really foundationally building our business using technology, optimizing your candidate and customer experience using technology, the DNA of who we are as a company is to continue to innovate fast and hard. And so I think a really interesting comparison would be, think of the difference between, um, you know, the way that Warby Parker has built their business um, versus Sunglass Hut, right? Like customer first, unique online experience, and then ultimately moving into omni-channel. And, and I think of Hunt Club as almost a digitally native search firm where everything that we do has been with tech and data and, and software from day one and, and unique network effects. So I think it, I think the DNA of our company gives ourselves a huge moat. Um, the second is network effects. You know, we have thousands and thousands of business leaders that have signed up, dropped their networks in our software and are getting rewarded every time their referrals get an opportunity, right? So not only does it feel great, but there's actually a monetary reward. And that builds a ton of great branded halo effects around the community um, so that we're actually able to scale customer acquisition quite a bit faster than, than a lot of our sort of you know, competitors in the landscape. Um, 
And I think the final thing is just really, you know, continuing investments in data and and other technology to power our platform and service. And so, you know, scaling a, a tech-enabled service is a complex model, right? You know, right now our company is 120 people growing to 250, 300 by next year. And and we've really invested in a lot in what operating motions and processes do you need to do to create a great experience for customers. And, um, and if you look at most traditional search firms, you know, a lot of them sit at sort of that five to 15 person boutique range. And, and there certainly are larger firms that have large parts of the market. But, you know, I think just by investing in a, in a business and thinking about it as a way to provide a service first using technology and network effects and really focusing on building ways to scale that through various operating motions, you know, I think it gives us a leg up on the competition. Um, so, and then culture, everyone talks about it, but it is the most important thing. Like we care so much about the people in, in our four virtual walls or sometimes when we're all together and, and trying to make it a great place to work, you know, trying to retain the Willy Polibos of the world and, and keep them. This is going to be great. Every single person listening to this podcast is going to try and poach him now. So don't let him, don't let him go. But, um, you know, making it a place where people have fun and care about each other and want to win or are passionate about what they're doing and can speak like human beings and not business robots and and just want to really change a category, right? So the way I think about it is you can go join a recruiting firm, do incredibly well, make a ton of money and, and have a great life, and but you're not going to be changing anything. Um, we really want people that are excited about that mission and vision. And, and I think that gives us a leg up on, on how we are able to recruit great talent to join us. You hit on a few few things there that uh, that I wanted to touch upon in in our closing time, but um, you know, it, talking with people who work at Hunt Club, uh, specifically Willie, and you know, this comment might hopefully earn him a few extra vacation days. Even yeah. though he'll just spend it going to Vegas, but uh, you know, Willie, somebody, but I, anybody, I, say again, a couple more nights at Encore for Willie. Exactly, exactly. Um, you, you know, your leadership style, your, your your general style of running a company is, you know, always applauded and always um, extremely appreciated. And I'm curious for you because, you know, you grew up and spent so much of your formative years as a tennis player, uh, which is kind of a little bit more of a solo sport. Um, but here you are, you've always had this sort of venture or this always had this sort of entrepreneurship bug in you. you you've, you've gravitated towards leadership roles um, and you had to go through this challenging experience during COVID. Um, I'm curious about for you, where did you sort of find inspiration? Where did you find your cues as a leader? What do you think were some of the formative, you know, people that you followed or, or just, you know, motivations or inspirations for you? Yeah. So I think in my early days in tennis, I was a part of an academy. And so we would train together. We would go play tournaments together. The, the guy that coached me was this, this guy named Mark Bay, and he was amazing at making an individual sport a team sport. And so, you know, we would we would be sitting watching our teammates, whether they were 12 or 18 years old, play their match when we were done with ours. And we would be going to dinner together. We'd be playing cards together. Um, and so he really made it a team sport. And I think from an early age, even though it is an individual sport, it never felt that way. You felt like you were kind of supporting each other as a team. And so, so I think that was a big part of it. And then when you start playing competitive college tennis, you know, it is a team sport. You can be all SEC and and have play number one and and have a great personal record. But if the team's not winning, you don't really excel. And so, yeah, I think we learned a lot of great lessons about just sort of building teams and and how to build great teams just from my head coach over at Vanderbilt and a lot of my peers there. Um, and so I think my final thing is like, I'm just, I feel really lucky. I've been surrounded by just amazing people and leaders through 
various business interactions, whether, you know, as I mentioned, it's Godard Able over a G2 or, or a lot of other friends who have built incredible businesses. And I think, you know, you get to realize that the best leaders speak authentically. They communicate like a person. They care for, for their people first. Caring for their people generally creates great business results. And I think, you know, I think it's been a combination of those things. Really fortunate to have access and, and sort of mentorship from a lot of amazing people that have invested in, in trying to help me think through different challenges as, as I try and grow up as a leader. So, Yeah, that's awesome. That's amazing. And yeah, I guess as somebody who only uh, played tennis up until eighth grade, uh, my knowledge of the sport is definitely <laughs> definitely lacking. I guess that's a good point. I have people who've played college golf have said the exact same thing and is way more of a team sport than people would expect. Um, it, no, but you're right, Matt. It is an individual sport. It's just, I, I was lucky in a lot of sense that I, the way that I grew up with it in juniors, our coach made it more of a team sport. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people in the tennis world and community that like don't care about anything but their own results. And and I just got very lucky that the place I got trained was, you know, very much about the whole, not, not one person. I'd love to end talking about uh, Nashville versus Chicago. You know, you guys incorporated in Chicago. You moved to Chicago after Nashville, after Vanderbilt, and it seems like you've been here ever since. Uh, what What's kept you in Chicago all these years? Uh, you know, have you ever thought about maybe relocating to Nashville? I've been to Nashville. It's uh, it's definitely one of my favorite cities in the U.S., probably a little bit warmer than Chicago during those treacherous winter months. Yeah, so like every great Chicagoan, or north suburbs of Chicago in. I grew up in Glenview. I feel like everyone just comes back after college, right? Like it's kind of got the New York thing or the Boston thing. And so, you know, after college, I just wanted to come back here. And I don't really know why. I just it was it seemed like what I was supposed to do. And and then building a business here now and I've got a you know an amazing wife and two kids and we're building a life in the suburbs together and you know, it's just a great place to raise a family. People are down to earth, kind, um, you know, but are still high achieving and high performing, right? And there's enough going on and there's enough access to great talent, capital and and ideas that I think you can build really special things in Chicago. So, so I'm, you know, I'm probably here for the long haul. Um, maybe at some point try and go somewhere warmer for parts of the year, but, but, I, but I love it here. And so I'm, you know, as much as I love Nashville and we'll go visit all the time on Team Chicago. Love it. Love it. Love it. Also, shout out to Glenview. Great neighborhood to grow up in. All my friends are from there. So uh, yes. amazing spot. It's um, changed a lot over the years. Has it really? I actually haven't spent a lot of time, but that's surprising. I feel like Glenview is one of those places that's just like so many people who grew up there always want to move back there. Is that where you guys moved back to? No, we actually we grew, we got a place in sort of the Winneka area, um, which is weird for me being a Glenbrook South Titan. Now my kids may go to Nutrier, but um, God. Yeah. So, so, uh, which is, it's a tough pill to swallow, but, um, but we definitely looked at it and we, we love it there. And, and my, my parents are still in Glenview and so we still have a ton of family there. So we were there all the time. Awesome. Awesome. That's awesome. Uh, final question have to ask, uh, favorite restaurant in Chicago that you want to give a shout out to. Wow. Favorite restaurant in Chicago. This is the hard ball. See, you've gotten the softballs for the past 35 minutes. This is where I put you on the spot. Willie didn't prep me for that. I'm such a cliche <laughs> Chicagoan too. Like, I don't want to say Lou Malnati's. I feel like that's the ultimate cliche, but uh, God, their pizza's so good. Oshaval's incredible. Great burgers. If I had to pick like a, a dinner spot I love in Chicago that's so uniquely Chicago. This is a really hard question. 
<laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you know what I'm gonna throw a total curveball out there. I love this place in Lincoln Park called Gemini Bistro. Great bar, like great American fare, simple dishes done incredibly well. They've got this bartender Emilio that's lights out. He's, he's pretty much my best friend when I used to live in Lincoln Park. Um, I'm gonna go with Gemini Bistro. So that that's my that's my pick. That's a little bit off the reservation, but it's a great neighborhood restaurant. No, I've got the, there's some, definitely some Gemini Bistro stands out there. I've got a few of them in my group text group right now who, whenever I ask like, Hey, where should I take Alexa for dinner? It's like Gemini Bistro. That's your spot. All right. I'm now I officially am going to give it a go. Steak frites, get a martini, get a beer, have a great night. It's awesome. Love that. Love that. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. This was such a blast. Can't wait to have you on here again in the future when that inevitable Series B comes. And uh, just really exciting to see what you guys are building and how you're kind of truly innovating in the space of HR tech. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me. And and uh, I'll go grab Willie and we'll get him on the next episode. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Yeah, people need to see him at this point. They need the reveal. All right. Take care, Nick. The real deal. See ya.